Lord Jesus, as we continue to ponder upon your death for us, open our eyes and warm our hearts and stir our wills to serve you as best we can throughout the rest of our lives. Amen. We continue our reading in Mark 15, and this is from verses 21 to 32. And the main theme is he saved others himself he cannot save. Mark 15, 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We come at last to the climax of Mark's book. Remember his opening words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was the beginning. And now we see to the agonizing heart of that good news. It is the Son of God, no less, who is to be nailed to that brutal cross. And as I reflect on this section, three things stand out. First, the horror of the cross. Second, the rescue of the cross. And thirdly, the uh, power of the cross. It was a horrible death. We use um, a cross uh, as an ornament in church. 
as uh, a pendant round the neck. But it was the most awesome, the most feared, the most agonizing, and the most protracted form of death ever devised. Sometimes people hung there for three days or more, dying. It was considered so painful, so shameful, that Roman citizens were exempt from this form of execution. It was done in a variety of ways, but in this case, there was a crossbeam carried by the victim himself to the place of execution, and there fixed to the, 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 the main stake, and um, then it was lifted with its ghastly burden and jerked into the ground. Sometimes the victim was attached to the cross by ropes, not so with Jesus. He was nailed there. Fascinatingly, macabrely, a skeleton of a crucified man from the first century AD has been found. And there is one large spike driven through the ankles. They're turned on one side and one spike is driven through. Thick nails are driven through the wrists. That is what happened to the best person who ever lived. The brutality of these thugs in uniform, the Roman execution squad, was legendary, and Jesus suffered it all. That is what the soldiery had long been wanting to do to a Jewish leader, and they were not going to spoil the chance once they had it. They were going to make the most of it. And the result was complete humiliation. We've heard how he's been mocked and spat at. In that all-night trials, and Jesus was too exhausted and weakened by the sleepless night, by the flogging, which often itself killed people. He was too exhausted to carry even his own crossbeam. He was subjected to continuous mockery and he was crucified naked. That is how they did it. Utter humiliation and expectations about being king of the Jews and the builder of the new temple. These things were thrown back in his face. He was totally isolated. Even the bandits who were crucified with him reviled him. A further aspect of the horror of the cross was that Jesus knew he was going to have to face it. He had lived with that knowledge for years as he read his Old Testament. 
and he knew that the scriptures pointed to him, their fulfillment. And Mark brings this out in a number of ways, the wine mixed with myrrh, the parting of his clothes, the mockery as the crowd shook their heads, his death between two evil men. He saw it all in the Psalms and in Isaiah. And earlier in his ministry, James and John had asked, or their mother had prompted them to ask, to be one on the right hand, one on the left in his kingdom. Well, here, the Son of God enters into his kingdom, erected on a gibbet. And as he had told James and John long ago, it was reserved for others to be on his right hand and on his left. And those two robbers occupied that place. Imagine the horror of living with that knowledge for years. No wonder he sweated blood in Gethsemane. Of course, the greatest horror of the cross was the assurance that Jews had been given back in Deuteronomy that the cross demonstrated God's judgment, God's curse. It was seen as the place of cursing. It marked out the victim as somebody who was under the judgment of God. Brutality, humiliation, anticipation, curse, all parts of the horror of the cross for us to ponder in the silence in a few moments. Mark's understatement is graphic, and they crucified him. No more, but it says it all. We see here too, not just the horror, but the rescue of the cross. The word save comes several times in this passage. It means rescue, and it points to a position of peril. The child in a burning house needs saving. The man drowning out at sea needs saving. But we? Do we need such drastic action? Are we perishing? That's a very unacceptable thought these days when we are rather pleased with ourselves and our achievements in this 21st century. And we are confident that we can handle whatever comes our way. Mark, however, is clear that we do need rescue and we need it desperately. Several of the features in this short passage and plenty preceding it, show how human beings still need 
rescuing because they're still perishing. And these things are very common in today's society. You see, the utter rejection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, mockery of him, and the rejection of Jesus today is noteworthy. The mockery of him in the media, in the office, by the government, in the pub, we do not want to know. Jesus, get lost. And there's also the irrational demand for proof. Come down now from the cross so that, notice, we may see and believe. That is the very thing that destroys faith, believing. Just as all trust in marriage would be destroyed if one partner employed a private detective to gather evidence about the other. It's when you believe that you really see, not the other way around. Rejection of God and the demand from proof, those are two very notable characteristics of today's society. And so is the third, hardness of heart. It's written all over this passage. These guys were hardened and coarsened. And hardness of heart is all over our society. I have just come back from two evangelistic missions. And in among some glorious responses to the gospel, I have seen hardness of heart that when a cross is carried through the street, people spit and turn away and curse. And people open windows and throw their heads out and call down horrible things. It happened. It happens today. It's a mark of the hardness of our hearts. And finally, I think, in these marks of what we are perishing from, you see hypocrisy. And we all do it. We blame others for what we do ourselves. The priests had arraigned Jesus on a charge of blasphemy. And the same word is used in verse 29, for them speaking evil of Jesus. Blasphemine. Rejection of God. Demand for proof. Hardness of heart. Hypocrisy. We need saving, all right. We have a fatal disease that requires a desperate remedy. And Mark knows that God has supplied that remedy in this lonely sufferer, Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. And Mark uses irony a lot in his gospel. And here, the irony is rich. The mocking superscription nailed above his head. They did that to show why the person was being executed. His read, the king of the Jews. And of course, that was the truth. 
The fact that the priests hailed him cynically as Messiah, King of the Jews, was in fact the truth. The garbled account of what he had said about destroying this temple and rebuilding it in three days was in fact the truth. His death and resurrection three days later led to the creation of a new way of access to God, a new temple, his resurrection body. And the jibe that he saved others, but he could not save himself, unwittingly expresses the very heart of the good news. As he had claimed earlier, his death would be a ransom for many, and precisely in order to save these others, he must not, he cannot save himself. What a costly ransom. What a loving savior. And finally, we have here, I think, a hint of the power of the cross. We shall see it later on as the impact of that cross hit the centurion. But when it was clear that Jesus could no longer carry his cross beam, the execution squad press-ganged a member of the crowd to do it for him. He was a Jew from North Africa, Simon. And why? are his sons mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. What has that got to do with it? Well, surely because they were known, this family, in the Christian community in Rome for whom Mark wrote. And sure enough, in Romans 16.13, we find mentioned Rufus chosen in the Lord. Maybe Alexander had died by then. We don't know. But I don't think it's fanciful to assume that carrying the cross piece of Jesus moved Simon so much that he and his family were transformed. They became Christians. And in a very profound way, they began to fulfill what Jesus had declared was the path of discipleship for us all. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When we come with repentance and awe to this cross, we find not only the rescue we need, but the power to transform us into courageous disciples and those are very much needed today. Let us pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer before we have our time of silence. And first, a prayer for God's help as we examine our consciences. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, 
look well if there are any wrongful ways in me, and lead me in your way everlasting. A man who prayed that prayer and searched his heart before crying to God for forgiveness was the 16th century John Donne, a man of passion and of many parts. Various stages in his life, he was a scholar, a satirist, a libertine, a military adventurer, a prisoner, a poet, and a Church of England vicar. Here is his prayer as he searches his heart. Forgive me, Lord, my sins, the sins of my youth, the sins of the present, the sins I laid upon myself in an ill pleasure the sins I cast upon others in an ill example, the sins which are manifest to all the world, the sins which I have labored to hide from mine acquaintance, from mine own conscience, even from my memory, my crying sins and my whispering sins, my ignorant sins, and my willful sins against my superiors, my equals, my lovers, my benefactors, sins against myself, against my own body, my own soul, sins against Thee, Almighty Father, merciful Son, blessed Spirit of God, Forgive me, O Lord, through the merits of thine anointed, my crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And as we kneel before that cross, before the one who saved others but could not save himself, We cannot bring excuses to the table. Almighty God, praise John Bailey, a godly theologian. Almighty God, in asking your forgiveness, I cannot claim a right to be forgiven. I can only cast myself on your unbounded love. I can plead no extenuating circumstances. I cannot plead the frailty of my nature. I cannot plead the force of the temptations I encounter. I cannot plead the persuasion of others who lead me astray. I can only say, for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, And in response to those
confessions, three crucial questions from Ignatius Loyola in the 16th century. What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What ought I to do for Christ? Well, we thank God, don't we, for songwriters, ancient and modern, who managed to encapsulate uh, something of the, the wonder and the horror of uh, the moment of crucifixion. And there's some moving words, isn't there? This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Now, focus in this next section is, is literally on the crux of it all, verses 33 to 39. Uh, please listen to these words or read along um, page 1023, Mark 15, verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry, saw how he died, he said, Surely, this man was the Son of God. The sky turns black in the middle of the day, and it's deeply symbolic. The brilliance of the sun is shrouded and so too at the cross, the glory of the Son of God is hidden. What is the darkness symbolizing? What is it all about? Well, Michael's already mentioned the irony that we see at work in much of the account of the crucifixion. And John alludes to that as well in his gospel, uh, in John 13 in verse 30, we read that as Jesus is sent out to betray Jesus, then it was night. Something deeply symbolic about this darkness that covers the land for those three hours as Jesus 
hangs on the cross. What is it symbolizing? Well, perhaps at one level, just the fact that there's darkness and ignorance and blackness and confusion. And even as Jesus hangs there and cries out those words, we'll think about it in a moment, one man assumes he's speaking to Elijah, waits for Elijah to bring him down. Yes, some traditions, of course, about the role of Elijah in cosmic events like this, but lots of misunderstanding and confusion from those who looked on. For others, the darkness symbolizes the cosmic chaos. The maker of this world is being bumped off. Matthew mentions earthquakes and tombs opening. It was a black day. And the whole world reels as its maker is pinned to a tree. For others, the symbolism Again, picking up on words from Isaiah 60, speak about the darkness covering the whole earth, maybe symbolizing God's absence at this point. And we can understand these interpretations. Human beings long to know God, and yet, often at the time of our apparent greatest need, time of great calamity, God seems not to be there. Has God abandoned us as Jesus hung on the tree? But I don't think any of those explanations do complete justice to the interpretation that Mark gives us himself. And it seems to be there are four things that help explain the darkness in Mark 15. Firstly, Jesus' quotation from Psalm 22. He quotes this well-known psalm, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why, why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? <coughs> and given the other allusions that we find in Psalm 22, it may well be that this psalm is very much on Jesus' mind. He's been meditating on it as he approaches his certain death. And in some respects, this verse is at the very heart of what's going on. I can remember that as, a, as an older teenager, becoming enthralled by the person of Jesus Christ and meeting up with a local evangelical clergyman and saying, so much of what Jesus said and so much of what Jesus did makes sense. I'd expect the Son of God to act like that. But I can't understand this verse. Why, at the point when Jesus was apparently achieving all that he'd worked towards, does he cry out that God has abandoned him? Well, Psalm 22 as a background is quite intriguing. For it speaks about the experience of the psalmist feeling the curse of God, feeling abandoned by God. And as Michael's already said, the quote from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But the big difference between the psalmist in Psalm 22 
and Jesus in Mark 15. And as the psalmist hears the counsel of God to his soul, he realizes that though he feels abandoned, God is nevertheless with him. But here at this point, the words we often call the cry of dereliction, Jesus in the blackness experiences distance, indeed nothing less than the curse of God upon him as he takes upon himself the sins of the world to be judged in our place. It's gory, but there's glory in that cry. Second possible explanation for the darkness, verse 37, is Jesus' loud cry before he breathes his last in verse 37. John tells us that Jesus shouts out the one word, finished or accomplished. Not a cry of defeat, but actually that Jesus has done what he came to do to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. The Christian faith can be summed up not in the word do, but in the word done. It is not what I can do to finish the task, to accomplish it for myself but rather it is what he has done, paid in full, finished the work the Father gave him to do. And this is further illustrated in the next verse, verse 38. The tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom, this enormous temple curtain symbolizing the way into the Holy of Holies. The writer to the Hebrews makes a lot of this very point, doesn't he? Perhaps particularly worth remembering Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. As he dies, he opens a new way, not through the old temple, but through the temple of his body. And as his body is torn, the way open to the very presence of God is opened up. And the fourth thing, it seems to me, which makes sense of this darkness is this wonderful conclusion in verse 39. The centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, hearing his cry and seeing how he died, says, surely this man was the son of God. He saw him die the one who endured all of that scourging and that mockery and that pain, 
there hanging on the tree, now experiencing abandonment by his father. And having heard him cry out his last, he responds with the greatest profession in the gospel. Surely this man was the son of God. And should we conclude anything less as we take our stance at the foot of the cross, seeing who he was and how he died, led that man to profess faith in God? We cannot do it, but Christ has done it all but it requires our response. We put our trust afresh in him as the one who paid the price for our sin. Yes, Easter Sunday is coming. A new day will dawn, the darkness will be banished. But Friday comes first. The cross is the central message of the Christian faith The resurrection validates it and authenticates it. But here is where the price was paid. Good Friday is a dark day. But it's not the end. In the darkness, a marvelous truth is highlighted. The brilliance of the Son of God, who allowed himself to be abandoned so that we might know the Father. Or maybe your heart is a little horrified at what Jesus endured for us, the blackness of it all. Yet do you not rejoice that he did it? For you and for me. Let's take time to pause and to ponder. Let's continue in prayer. Our Father and our God, as we continue to ponder these things we thank you we thank you lord that in your word we have hints and explanations as to why jesus would endure such agony and torture allowing himself to be judged for the sins of the world we pray lord that your church would lift high the cross that we would preach christ and him crucified that we would go into this world with that as our banner, that as the hallmark of who we are as the people of God. And yet as we spent this time together at the foot of the cross, there's mystery too. What love it was that drove you there, that enabled you to hang on the cross and to bear all our sins and our punishment. We pray, Lord, that as well as growing in our understanding, we'd also grow in our worship. We'd adore you afresh for 
all that you've done for us, help us to pause and to meditate and to focus upon the Christ who died and indeed was raised and sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And we pray and ask these things in whose precious name. Amen. Executions are messy businesses, so there were some loose ends to tie up. Mark chapter 15 and verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So we too have watched, perhaps from a distance. Perhaps as we have watched, we have been drawn a little closer than we were before. As so often, it seems that the women endured longer than the men. Uh, John tells us the disciples were still around, but Mark makes a point of telling us that the women were there. The only man who's mentioned here at the end of the story is the bloke being paid for it, the centurion. But the women who had cared for Jesus in Galilee, what a lovely expression that is, and many other women were there. Joseph wasn't far away, and John tells us that Nicodemus helped him with great courage, for it would have taken great courage. They went to, to Pilate to ask him to bury the body of Jesus. And the women watched that, and the two Marys went and saw where Jesus was laid. What question raged in these women's minds as from a distance they watched the one for whom they had cared die this excruciating, agonizing death? What question do you ask when you see that? What question do you ask when there is suffering, especially innocent suffering? What question do you ask when an earthquake 
hit Christchurch, New Zealand, or when the tsunami swept through Japan, destroying the coastline and countless lives. What question do you ask when, when, when young women, often not very far from where we live, are abducted and murdered by seemingly harmless neighbors? What question do you ask when children are abused by pedophiles, when hundreds and hundreds of people are rounded up because they run a pedophile ring? What question do you ask when thousands of innocents get destroyed as a mad dictator hangs on to power? Well, I ask why? I ask why is this happening? Why, Lord, why? It's a question we've been throwing around during these three hours. It's a question that comes to us again and again. It surely must have been the question in these faithful women's minds. They had cared for Jesus. I wonder what that had involved over the previous two or three years as they had looked after him. It must have been quite a challenging task as they continually were on the move up and down uh, Israel and into the north, up north even of Galilee. It must have been quite a logistics exercise for them. It must have taken over their lives. What had they done with their children while they were looking after Jesus and the disciples? What on earth did they think was going to happen now? The one that they cared for, they'd done the washing, they'd cooked the meals. The one that they cared for was dead and cold. He could not be cared for anymore. There was no one to care for now. He was bloodied and bruised. He was utterly destroyed. Why? Why? They must have asked that question. Why is this happening? And I want to try and close our time by looking back for a moment at what Simon just now called the crux of the matter and try to look at that question, why, in the light of that crux of the matter. And I think we find that there are four surprising answers to the question. In a sense, I'm rehearsing again what Simon had said. But I want to do two things. I want to point to these four surprises. And I want to share with you a passage of Scripture for each one that sheds light on that surprise. And leave it with you, perhaps to take away with you and to read at another time. Why did Jesus die? Well, of course, the first surprise... In, chapter, in verse 33, as Simon said, was a very surprising darkness. A darkness came over the land in the middle of the day. Why? Well, of course, the darkness came because God was angry. God was angry because of sin. Darkness, the darkness of wrath came on the earth. God is angry. The surprising thing is not that there was a tsunami in Japan or an earthquake in Christchurch. The surprising thing is that is not that people are shockingly wicked. We shouldn't be surprised by sin. The surprising thing is that we are not all utterly destroyed. The surprising thing is not suffering 
The surprising thing is survival. For God is angry with sin. It is odd and surprising that we are not utterly destroyed. So don't ask why suffering. Ask why survival. Sin causes a terrible darkness over the face of the earth. My, pa- my passage is from Isaiah 59. Do turn to it if you want, or you might want to read it later, but uh, I just want to read a few verses of Isaiah 59 to remind you, as perhaps we're so inclined to forget, perhaps the women who cared for Jesus and did so selflessly and well could easily have forgotten this, just how serious sin is. Isaiah 59, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. A surprising darkness, only if we underestimate the importance of sin. Why did Jesus die? The second surprise was, of course, the surprising cry. Again, very well explained by Simon. What can the cry of desolation mean other than that God's perfect son was indeed at that moment cut off from his loving heavenly father and now dead on that cross? He descended into Hades, we say in the creed. He is dead. God is dead. Why did Jesus die? Why did he die? My God, my God, you have forsaken me. Because what else can it mean than that he was being punished for these dreadful rebellion that Isaiah described so graphically in Isaiah 59. What can it be but that? What could else could have caused such an appalling thing to happen? That God should be hanging dead on a Roman cross as he took the punishment we deserve. As I said in Summertown just now, God has passed the sentence and God has served the sentence. Let me just read a little of Psalm 22, which again you might want to read before you go to bed tonight. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breath. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. It was a surprising cry, but at the very moment when Jesus goes into hell, into the hell of death, he knows that his rescuing God will still be with him. We would not have been able to do that. For us, without Jesus, there is a hell with no God. And then, of course, there is the surprising tear. The curtain is ripped in two. Perhaps they didn't know about that immediately. Maybe they only heard about that later, the women. I don't think it could have been possible for them to know at that moment. But they would have asked, what has happened there? Why has that happened? What's that all about? Well, of course, the place where only the high priest goes is opened up. Sin has been atoned for. That which was closed to us has been thrown open. That which was impossible for us is now possible. Do you remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? With man it is impossible. No one can be saved. We don't think that, do we? We think we can just about be good enough. It is impossible for anyone to enter the holy place. It is impossible. But the curtain is ripped in two as God does the impossible. He dies. It's not possible, but it happened. Let me read how Paul described this in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of the cross, through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulation. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. A surprising tear. Why? So that women, Israeli women, Jewish women, Gentile women, Jewish men, Jewish women, Gentile men, Gentile women, gentle boys, Gentile boys and girls, Jewish boys and girls could all come into the Father's presence forever and ever and ever. A surprising tear. And lastly, that lovely, brilliant climax to Mark's gospel. Uh, he starts off the gospel, as we were reminded early, earlier, by saying that he's going to tell us the story of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. It takes till chapter 15 and verse 39 for the man put in charge of his execution to say what we must all say at the end of this three hours. Surely this man was the Son of God. You see, he had to be God. Let's decide, let's decide for a moment that we, uh, you as a church, you as a church decide that it is time for somebody to pay the sin of, uh, of St. Andrews. So why don't we pick the vicar? He might as well die on the cross. That would be a reasonable thing. Actually, even better, let's pick the curate. Grossly unfair. Grossly unfair. Why should I pay for your sins? Why should Pete or John pay for your sins? Grossly unfair. He has to be God. It has to be the perfect, sinless Son of God. It has to be the judge who passes the sentence, who pays the penalty. The centurion has to be right. Nobody else could pay the price of sin. It's surprising, it is surprising that the centurion should spot it. It is a surprising and it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful part of the story that Mark tells us. But it tells us that Jesus has to be the one. There can be no other savior. It's not fair if anybody else does it. But if God takes a punishment upon himself in the mystery of the Trinity, satisfying his great need, his absolute dependence upon being just but his overwhelming love for mankind whom he created to know him but has rebelled against him it's a surprising confession but it is a crucially important confession what did it really mean you might want to look at Colossians 1 a little bit later on to see what the centurion was really saying Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Surely this man was that son of God. So the women watched all this as we have And then a couple of them at least followed Joseph and Nicodemus into the garden. Perhaps you've been to the place that it's remembered in Jerusalem. Beautiful, quiet spot, whether it's the real spot or not, no one knows. But a place like that, a garden. Maybe the questions were still spinning in their minds. But I suspect that they had answered the question sufficiently to spend their lives, the rest of their lives, not just the two or three years that they cared for Jesus. I suspect that these women had answered the question sufficiently to spend the rest of their lives in service of the one they were going to discover on Sunday morning is the risen Jesus. And I suspect that the early church knew that only too well. That's why they're named here. That's why they're here, just why Rufus was named earlier. They knew that these women who went to Calvary went on caring in the years to come. May that be true for us also as we go from Calvary back into the world that needs to know of Jesus' love. Let's pray. As we close our three hours together, we're going to pray for the world that those women went back into to serve. Many of the questions that they had about the cross were answered in the next few years as they were taught and as they learnt. Many of the questions were answered on Easter morning when they encountered the risen Jesus and knew that he was indeed the Son of God. But our world is still in night. And so we pray for those, Lord Jesus, who have the opportunity over these next 48 hours or so uh, to point the world to Jesus. We pray for those who will be on the media for our Archbishop. We pray particularly for Bishop John, especially as he's so much in the news today and will have countless opportunities, no doubt, for interview. Fill him with your spirit and give him courage to point to the crucified and risen Jesus. We pray for the Bishop of London as he has opportunity to preach to billions of people next Friday. And we pray that his words would 
would point to the crucified and risen Jesus. And we pray for ourselves as a church. Help us to be faithful to this amazing, impossible thing that has happened, which has changed history forever. And we pray for our nation. We pray for the leaders of our nation. Give them wisdom and courage. We pray that the freedoms that we cherish, the freedoms to proclaim this message without fear or favor would be protected. That our country might continue to hear this great news. And we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, millions and millions of them. You can read about them in the Times today. We pray for those for whom it is a very frightening thing today to meet at the foot of the cross. Please comfort and help them and grow your church. We pray for the peace of the world. And we pray particularly for Christian people working for peace in places where there is great strife. We pray for those who have gone, even today, perhaps from gatherings like this in places like Libya or Syria or Gaza or Zimbabwe or Somalia or Eritrea or North Korea, countless other places, Iran, we pray for our brothers and sisters in those places who are right now going from the foot of the cross away from the foot of the cross into a place where they themselves might be crucified or its equivalent. And we stand with our brothers and sisters in those situations and pray for them on this Good Friday that you would keep them strong in faith and show us how to love them. And finally, Lord Jesus, as we go into this strange period of time between Good Friday and Easter morning, we pray that you would write onto our minds and hearts a deeper understanding of your love for us and a glorious anticipation of the crowning ceremony, of the medal ceremony, of the victory parade on Sunday morning when we will know afresh that surely this man was the Son of God. And we will gather together and we will rejoice in the risen Jesus.